0: This evening, our uh, guest is Giles Milton. He is a writer, journalist, and podcast host. He read English at the University of Bristol and now specializes in the history of travel and exploration. He's written nine works of narrative nonfiction and also published four, uh, excuse me, three novels, including According to Arnold, whose title we liked because we have a staff member, Arnold, at the circulation desk. Um, He's contributed articles to most of the British national newspapers, as well as many foreign publications. Mr. Milton relies on personal testimonies, diaries, journals, uh, and letters to tell the story of key moments in history through the eyes of those who were there. In the course of his research, he's traveled extensively to Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and the Americas. His books have been translated into more than 20 languages and serialized on the BBC and in British newspapers. Tonight, Mr. Milton will discuss his newest book, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare The Mavericks Who Plotted Hitler's Defeat, which Kirkus described as elegant and suspenseful. The Wall Street Journal called it a rousing account in a celebration. Uh, and the Library Journal called it entertaining, which I am sure you will find it this evening. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Meldon.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here because I've always wanted to come to the Boston Athenaeum. Um, I've just been given a little sneak tour around the back and it's, it's just splendid. I felt like I was back in London in a sort of gentleman's club in, in Pall Mall. A wonderful place. Um, I'm going to take you tonight, lead you into one of the most closely guarded secrets of the Second World War. It's a story um, of ingenuity, of creativity, of, in modern parlance, I suppose you'd say, out-of-the-box thinking. Um, It's also a story of great courage and daring, um, particularly on the part of the men and the women who took part in the missions that I'm going to talk about. Um, It uh, owes a lot to this man here. No, it's not the actor Gary Oldman, for those of you who've seen Darkest Hour. This is the big beast himself, um, and he was instrumental in everything that was to happen um, in what I'm going to talk about um, during the war. Um, I'll give you one of his quotes, which I rather like, one of his lesser-known quotes. He said, It's not just the good boys who win wars, but the cheats and stinkers as well. <laughs> so he will, he's going to crop up uh, throughout this talk. As is this man here, rather less well known. He um, is called Colin Gubbins. He was to become the great master of sabotage and guerrilla warfare. And um, yes, I will be returning to um, him in a moment. Uh, most surprising of all, perhaps, is that this very secret story um, involves uh, an American institution uh, of which you will be very familiar, one that is still plays a major role in the shaping of the world today, so that is another thing that will come up later in the talk, but we're going to start um, with this man here um, on the, uh, in my hometown of London. This is Robert Bauer, and Robert Bauer was a member of Parliament. Um, he was uh, a slightly—he um, was well known for all the wrong reasons. He had a rather nasty temper, and he was rather unpleasant individual. Actually, uh, he'd been in Parliament uh, a few years earlier. He'd uh, thrown out a rather nasty racist ju- uh, jibe at one of the Jewish members of Parliament, who'd crossed the floor of the House and punched him in the face. Um, so he was known for his unsavoury views. Now he was participating in a debate in the spring of 1940. Um, on how the British should tackle the problem of Hitler and the Nazis. And he listened to a succession of speeches from his conservative MPs saying that um, war was a little bit like a game of cricket. You know, there were rules that you should stick to. Um, A bit like the Queensbury rules in boxing. You you shouldn't hit a man when he was down. That just wasn't British. That wasn't the way of doing things. Now, Robert Bauer listened to all these things, and he was absolutely appalled. And he stood up, and he made a speech, and he said, when you're fighting for your life against a ruthless opponent, you cannot be governed by the Queensbury rules. We must have a government, he said, which will be ruthless, relentless, and remorseless. In short, we want a few more cads in this government. Now, what um, Robert Bauer did not know and nor did um, any of his fellow MPs, and nor did anyone in the country um, at large, was that an organization had been set up in the greatest possible secrecy, and it was tasked with planning a thoroughly ungentlemanly war against Hitler's Nazis. It was known at the beginning, at least, as MIR, which is Military Intelligence Research, and its work was really so controversial, so shocking, um, and possibly illegal that it really had to be kept under the tightest possible wraps. Um, And so this story, this story of of, of sabotage, of guerrilla warfare in its very infancy begins um, partly with Robert Bauer, but partly, surprisingly perhaps, with this woman here. She was called Joan Bright and she was 29 in 1939 and she was looking for work in the spring of that year. She was a very clever clever woman, she spoke several languages, and she was very well connected through her parents. And one of these connections got her the offer of a job with uh, Rudolf Hess, the deputy Führer of Nazi Germany. But she didn't particularly want that job, and in fact she wanted to be based in London. So she put the word around, she told her friends she was looking for work, And one of her friends said that he could get her a job, very mysteriously, if she went to St. James's Underground Station at 11am on a certain day wearing a pink carnation in her buttonhole. Well, Joan, as you can imagine, was somewhat perplexed and bewildered by this. Um, She thought it was probably a practical joke on his part but she decided to go along at the appointed time with a pink carnation in her buttonhole. And sure enough, there was a mystery lady waiting for her, and that mystery lady uh, took her away and led her to this building here. This is St. Ermin's Hotel. It's very close to Big Ben in London. In fact, it looks exactly the same uh, today. It was a hotel, as I say, but... On the fourth floor, there was an office, and it was the Office of MIR, Military Intelligence Research. Joan was led up to uh, the fourth floor. She was introduced to a military colonel who told her that she was being interviewed for a job so secret, he said, that you will get needles in your toenails if you're ever caught by the Gestapo. Uh, Joan was a little taken aback by this, um, and she was so sort of flabbergasted really, that um, she took the piece of paper that was shoved across the table and signed it and handed it back to him and only realised at that point that she had just signed the Official Secrets Act. Now, a couple of days later, she met her boss. Her boss was, uh, of course, Colin Gubbins, the man we met very briefly earlier. And he's a very, very interesting uh, character in this whole story. And he, he is the key character, really, in the story. He was a Scottish Highlander, a tough Scottish Highlander. He'd left school at 16. He had no formal education after that. And he'd signed up for the military. And of course, this was the time of the First World War. So he'd gone straight to Flanders. He'd fought in the trenches in the mud of Flanders. A terrible, horrible war. He got shot. Um, He spent half his time digging out his mutilated chums from the, from the, from the ghastly mud. Um, A really horrible, Uh, terrible war that you would think would uh, probably put you off war for life. But not Colin Gubbins. He was absolutely fascinated by really, if I can put it this way, the business of war. And in particular, he was fascinated by how the rules of war might be subverted. So far from going back into civilian life, he signed up for a tour of duty in Ireland, doing battle against this man here. This is Michael Collins and his band of Sinn Féin revolutionaries. This war in Ireland was very nasty, it was very bitter, and it was very unpredictable. Gubbins complained, he said, about being shot at from behind hedges by men in Trilby and Mackintoshs and not being allowed to shoot back. But what this taught him was that uh, irregular soldiers armed with makeshift weapons could wreak havoc on a regular army. And um, he really, from that point, he began to study the whole idea of guerrilla warfare. Um, he particularly studied this man here, who I'm sure you'll all know, um, Al Capone, the great sort of gangster of Chicago. Um, he thought... Uh, he, uh, Al Capone's techniques were uh, really effective in the sense that he would um, strike very suddenly, always using surprise, and then slink away before he could get caught. Um, he also, his men were always armed with these Tommy guns, a very, very effective weapon. And um, from that point, uh, Gubbins decided that when he recruited some of his guerrillas, they would always be armed with this, with this weapon. So in 1939, in the spring of 1939, Gubbins had been instructed to go and set up really, set in motion this MIR, military intelligence research. And that is what he did. And he began really to study, there was no single book on how to fight a guerrilla war at that point. So he began to study this and he wrote his own book which was called The Art of Guerrilla Warfare. You can see it here as a pamphlet. And this would become a seminal work, really, on how to fight a thoroughly dirty and ungentlemanly war um, against Hitler's Nazis. And what Gubbins realized very early on, which, you know, the British Army was in a terrible state in 1939. It simply wasn't equipped to fight uh, Nazi Germany or the the Nazi Army. But Gubbins realized that... um, a highly mechanized army had many points of weakness which could easily be attacked. So if you took out a bridge or a viaduct, you could stop an entire panzer division in its tracks. Likewise, if you uh, blew up a fuel dump, uh, you could deprive it of any means of getting anywhere. So this book was full of um, useful tips, so in case any of you ever want to sabotage a factory, don't just blow up the whole factory because that's a complete waste of explosives. Choose the same part on every single machine and blow that up because in that way, it will be almost impossible for the enemy to replace that part. And should you ever wish also to bring down an electricity pylon, do not put explosives under all four legs. If you do, the thing will slump down a few feet and stay standing. The key thing is to put explosives under three legs, the whole thing will tip over, and you've brought down the power supply. Um, Gubbins was, he certainly didn't mince his words in this this, uh, pamphlet he said, um, it is not sufficient to shoot at a train, first derail the train and then shoot down all the survivors now this was going to be issued to all his people in the field, his saboteurs in the field, so it's very important that it didn't fall into enemy hands so he instructed Joan Bright to have it printed on edible paper and it was said that you could eat and swallow the whole thing in two minutes uh, if, if you had a large glass of water to go with it <laughs> now The early months of the war were, of course, marked by inaction, the phony war, Um, And it wasn't until uh, May 1940 when, of course, Hitler's forces stormed into Holland, into Belgium, and into France. Perhaps some of you have seen the film Dunkirk. Perhaps some of you have seen The Darkest Hour. That, of course, is all set around this time, the spring of 1940. And Britain, um, it's difficult to realize now just what a desperate state Britain was in um, at the point where Churchill became prime minister in May. Everyone in Britain was expecting a Nazi invasion at any time. And Churchill, one of the first things he did when he became Prime Minister was he uh, wrote to Roosevelt. And he said, um, the scene has darkened swiftly. We expect to be attacked here ourselves, both from the air and by parachute and airborne troops in the near future. And we are getting ready for it. And he was getting ready for it in a very unorthodox fashion. This building here was the headquarters of Marks and Spencer's. But in July 1940, Churchill took the momentous decision. to requisition this building and he uh, made it the headquarters of a new organization called the Special Operations Executive, SOE. This was to fight the dirty war behind enemy lines. So they took the existing MIR and they placed it on a much firmer footing with access to unlimited money and the unlimited support of Winston Churchill as prime minister. Um, And so it was to be based in this building, although it grew um, vastly over the um, next few years of war. Churchill, this is a very rare picture of the inside. There are very, very few pictures of this. Um, Churchill quipped that it was his ministry of ungentlemanly warfare, hence the title of my book. And in words that were to, to become famous later after the war, he uttered his famous words in that summer of 1940 that he wanted to set Europe ablaze. Um, Gubbins was appointed uh, to, in charge of this organization and his task was to uh, fi- recruit and train um, some guerrillas who could be dropped behind enemy lines. And this is where the uh, story takes the first of several very surprising twists. Because in that summer of 1940, This man, and a fellow friend of his, pitched up in London, made their way to Gubbins' office, and offered their services um, to SOE. Now, at first glance, they don't exactly look, he doesn't exactly look like a gorilla. Um, He had these pebble glass uh, spectacles, a dimpled smile, he looks like a lovely old British gentleman. Uh, One of his friends said that he had the manner and appearance of an elderly, amiable clergyman. He spoke in soft tones, and he had a benevolent smile. Um, He told Gubbins he really wanted to help, and Gubbins sort of uh, thought, well, maybe he could be a member of the Home Guard, the so-called Dad's Army, you know, patrolling the streets of suburbia. But and there was a big but. Sykes um, then began to say what he'd done beforehand. He'd been working in Shanghai. He'd worked as a representative for uh, two American firearms companies, Colton Remington, and he was one of the world's greatest experts in silent killing. He was chilling, he was ruthless, he was absolutely clinical um, in his attitude to death, and he was a man whose every sentence was said to end with the words, and then kick him in the testicles. (laughs) He was said to be the finest shot in the world, and his speciality was shooting from the hip. And he pitched up in London with um, his best friend, William Shanghai Buster Fairburn, who also, apparently, uh, he doesn't look like it here, but he also looked like a vicar. Someone said that his horn-rimmed spectacles and benevolent expression earned him the nickname of the deacon. Yet his sermon had a nasty sting in the tail. Kill or be killed, it was his catchphrase. William Fairburn had been head of the Shanghai Riot Squad, and his task, together with um, Eric Sykes, was to track down and kill gangsters in the most violent city in the world. Um, Here is a picture of their riot squad. And they took to this task with some relish. They killed scores of gangsters um, in the city. And to give you a feel of of Fairburn, um, a little quote from him, he said, um, In this war... You can't afford the luxury of squeamishness. Either you kill or capture, or you will be killed or captured. We've got to be tough to win, and we've got to be ruthless. Now, his manner of talking... Absolutely appalled the old school generals um, uh, of the British Army. They could not quite believe what he was um, expecting soldiers to do. If I, I'll just read you a very short quote from Major General Sir Edward Spears, who was really one of the old guard of the British Army. He listened to one of um, uh, Fairburn's lectures and um, was, was appalled. He said, This is monstrous! Don't pay attention to this dreadful teaching. Remember, we are British. We do not stoop to thug element tactics. We do not stab in the back. We fight as men. We do not slash. Now this must must cease. But it didn't cease because Churchill thought this was an absolutely fantastic idea. And he sent these men up to this place here. This is a place called Arisade. It's an old country uh, hunting lodge. Um, And this was requisitioned and became STS 21, the STS standing for Special Training School. But everyone who went there simply called it the Killing School. Um, it's now a rather lovely hotel. I was there with my wife quite recently. And um, it's very remote, so you can see why they chose it. And I asked the uh, owner of the hotel, there were these um, weird brick outhouses on the lawn of the place uh, with no windows just a single door and I said what what earth are those for and she said well that's where they used to lock away the would-be saboteurs for two to three days with no food and only a little water and then they'd bring them out and interrogate them as if they were being interrogated by the Gestapo so this was sort of the sort of training regime they went through. Um, here's a rather good picture of them training. Um, yeah, they learn pistol shooting, knife fighting, um, survival skills. They learn how to kill a sentry with piano wire. Um, all sorts of, you know, very dirty, dirty tricks. Here's a band of them being trained. I rather like this picture. Um, life was very tough there, but it wasn't all bad. They learned that with the explosives they had, if you chucked a load of explosives into the lock and detonated it, um, it was a very, very good way to get lots of fresh salmon. Um, and they also went hunting for venison uh, using their tommy guns on the moors of Scotland so they ate pretty well while they were there now at this point in the story this man, uh, perhaps you recognise him this is, of course his Colonel William Wild, uh, Wild Bill Donovan Um, he comes into the story. Um, He'd obviously fought with great courage in the First World War, and um, he was now placed in charge of the newly formed OSS, uh, OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was very similar um, to the British SOE. And very soon after he'd been appointed, he came um, to Britain to meet with Colin Gubbins and really to to take his advice. Um, And he went up to Arasig House with Colin Gubbins, and um, he was most impressed by this training camp. And he decided to set up his own training camp in North America. But of course this was very difficult. At this time America was forbidden by the Neutrality Act um, from being directly involved in the war. So what he did was Camp X, a very poor grainy photo, but this is Camp X was um, settled in Canada just across the border to get over the problem of the Neutrality Act. And um, this was where um, the the first batch of American guerrillas were to be trained. Um, And now here is a, here's a rather nice picture of, of William Fairburn there, um, because Donovan did not just want to imitate uh, Arrseic House, he wanted it to be identical. so he actually poached William Fairburn. He asked Colin Gubbins if he could borrow him, and William Fairburn came over to Canada to, tr- to teach this first batch of saboteurs. Um, there 's a rather nice story where um, William Fairburn would ask his t- trainees to attack him using any weapon, a knife, a carving knife, a dagger, whatever, and he was unarmed, and he said, "You can attack me and you 'll never get to me you 'll never get close to me and um, ninety nine times out of one hundred that proved the case. But one very large, burly, and very skillful american would be saboteur called Jeffrey Jones uh, came at uh, William Fairburn with some force and managed to stick his knife into Fairburn 's cheek and rip it all the way open all the way. down and he said I've got a rather nice quote from him here he said I thought Jesus Christ I've done it now he's going to kill me but rather than killing him Fairburn stood back mopped up the blood and said good boy well done (laughs) and oh yeah here's here's just a a, a quick one of a front cover of one of Fairburn's books him and Sykes together they wrote um, a number of books this one's by Fairburn alone gets tough you sort of get the gist of what's inside it So once America was in the war, of course, uh, the training camps were moved onto American soil. Uh, OSS was expanded. Here is its uh, very large and plush headquarters. Um, So we're beginning to build up our our team of uh, guerrillas now, our team of uh, saboteurs, they're being trained. But, of course, any uh, saboteur worth his salt needs weapons. And so uh, we must move now back to England, to this place here. This was a country house called... The Furs. Um, Perhaps you know, you've heard of Bletchley Park. Um, You may have seen the imitation game where the Enigma codes were cracked. Everyone in Britain knows about Bletchley Park. No one knows about the Furs six miles down the road. Um, And this was to become the great. place of invention for all the bespoke weapons of sabotage that were used in the Second World War. Not only that, it became a production line for the production of, and I'm not exaggerating here, literally millions of weapons. Um, and uh, it involved a, a character who, like Sykes, like Fairburn, like Gubbins, was to become a mainstay of guerrilla warfare in the war. And his name, he's on the right here, his name is um, Millis Jefferis. He was an absolutely brilliant mathematician. He had a brain like a computer. Um, Like so many of the men who volunteered for this outfit, he'd been posted to British India for some time, and he had first-hand experience of fighting on the uh, Northwest Frontier. In fact, here's a picture of, this is one of his band of troops that he had on the Northwest Frontier. Um, He was also a structural engineer, and he'd been building bridges and viaducts in uh, in in the ravines and the gorges of the Northwest Frontier. And it was really at this point where he had his Damascus moment, he realized that um, these bridges, if you blew them up, you really could stop an army in, uh, in its tracks, likewise with power stations. So Churchill came to hear of his talents and immediately gave him employment. He said, report to me on the position of Major Jeffreys." By whom is he employed? Who is he under? I regard this officer as a singularly capable and forceful man who should be brought forward to a higher position, a brilliant officer with ingenious and inventive mind. He gave Jeffreys his own unit, MD1, Ministry of Defence 1, and gave him the FERS, which was to become his headquarters. And here um, is a picture of Churchill there, Millis Jeffreys in the middle, and on the left is Professor Lindemann, who was his his close friend and scientific um, advisor. Oh, yeah, and there's a, there's a picture of uh, some of the boffins who uh, worked on developing some of these weapons, one of which actually was poached also by the, uh, by the Americans and ended up working on the uh, Manhattan Project. And here's a picture of the team at the FURS. Now, notice something interesting about this picture is the number of women involved. Both Colin Gubbins and Millis Jeffress were very unusual uh, for the time in believing that women should play as full a part as men. And this is just the very, very first few months of uh, the FURS. The staff expanded enormously because, as I said, they were producing a huge sort of production line of weapons Um, Very difficult to work with Milis Jeffries. he was a workaholic, he worked 16 hours a day. Um, He was was a, a nightmare by all accounts, but he was very efficient at developing brilliant weapons. One of which was, which I might come back to later if we have time, was the ST grenade, the sticky bomb it was called. And just to give you an idea, when Churchill heard about this wonderful new invention, this bomb that could blow a hole through a German tank, I found a memo in the National Archives in England from Churchill to Millis Jeffress, and it said simply, ST Grenade, make one million. Now, a lot of the men and women uh, who worked at the furs were pretty eccentric, but um, this is my favorite character, really, in the whole book. He was not only eccentric, he was mad as a hatter, but he was utterly brilliant. Um, his name was Cecil Clark, and he was a trailer engineer from Bedfordshire, and he developed all sorts of incredible new technology for his his trailers. Here's one, actually, um, extraordinary thing uh, that he built. He'd also fought in the First World War in an explosives battalion. And as one of his friends said, he never lost the habit of making loud bangs. Um, so he was inducted into the uh, MD-1 at a very early date. And he was instructed to start turning out some prototype weaponry that might be useful. And he did this in his own fashion. So he had this idea for a bomb which would require a metal bowl which he bought from Woolworth's store in Bedfordshire. So he bought a metal bowl. Then he went to the sweet manufacturers which was called Bassett's and he bought a bagful of aniseed balls. Then he went to Boots the chemist and bought some packets of condoms And then, with with these ingredients, and I have to say, a large dose of plastic explosive, um, he went to Bedfordshire swimming pool to test out his new weapon, built with this metal bowl, some explosives, and an aniseed bowl. And now, it sounds homespun, but what he had just invented was one of the greatest weapons of sabotage of the Second World War. It was called the limpet mine. And it was deadly effective. It was effectively, it was a magnetic mine. It was lined with magnets. And basically, if a a diver could swim underwater with one of these things, slap it onto the underside of a German battleship, and bang. And this is where the uh, Anastasia ball comes in. Cecil Clark realized that they dissolved with absolute regularity in seawater. So you knew exactly when this thing was going to detonate, how long you had to get away, basically. So, you know, one diver could blow up one ship. A team of divers could blow up a team of ships. But this thing... It worked on metal, so it was brilliantly versatile. It could work on on turbines. It could work on electricity power stations. It could work on anything. And it was used throughout the war. It was modified, obviously, during the course of the war. And it was responsible for sinking enormous numbers of German battleships and also for um, wrecking an awful lot of power stations. Um, you might wonder why he needed the condoms. Of course, if you have a, a, a weapon that is likely to blow up if the, if the aniseed ball gets wet or even damp, you need to keep this thing pretty dry. And he realised that if you stretch a condom over the whole thing, it kept it completely moisture-proof. So there was a rather wonderful story of him and a friend, they went round every chemist in, the hometown, in his hometown of Bedfordshire um, buying up hundreds and hundreds of packets of condoms and earning, as he said, remember he was a middle-aged gentleman, earning, he said, uh, uh, an undeserved reputation for being sexual athletes (laughs) now there are many characters like this in my book but I think we should probably focus on one of the operations so you really get the idea of what they were doing And one of their operations, one of the most spectacular operations, begins with this man here. He was called Frantisek Moravec. I'm sure I've pronounced that wrong, but he was head of the Czech secret service. You've got to remember there were numerous governments in exile um, in London at the time, and they brought their secret services with them. So he was head of the Czech secret service. And this is, of course, this Eduard Benes, who was head of the Czech government in exile. Now, these two men came under immense pressure from Stalin to do something to hit back at the Nazis who'd occupied their country. What to do? Well, they hatched a spectacular plan, which was to assassinate this man here. Reinhard Heydrich, the Reichsprotector protector of Bohemia and Moravia, also known as the Butcher of Prague. He was Hitler's favorite, um, and he was a truly nasty individual who was responsible on a daily basis for putting hundreds of checks in front of the firing squad. Um, he made a most enticing target. But how do you kill someone like him? Here he is again, getting into his car. Moravec really wasn't so sure. So he turned to Colin Gubbins, who by now had a certain amount of expertise in in sabotage and guerrilla warfare. And what Gubbins did, um, as he always did, he he began to study very precisely uh, the movements of, of, of the people he intended to hit. And he studied the movements of, Rein, uh, of, of Heydrich, who lived outside the city of Prague and had to drive in. It was about a 10-mile drive into the city every day. And he realized that Heydrich took the same route every single day. And he, 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 took, um, he drove in in this armor-plated uh, Mercedes, which, although it has a soft top, when the roof was, down, was up, it was a very, very difficult car to blow up um, uh, because of the armor-plating. Um, So as he studied the route that Heydrich took into the city each day, he realized that the car went round a hairpin bend as it came came into the city uh, precinct, basically. And he realized that you couldn't possibly drive around this hairpin bend at more than 15 miles an hour. And he immediately realized that this was the place where they had to strike, the assassins would have to strike here um, but how to do it? What, how were they, they going to take out an armor-plated Mercedes? Well, back to our old friend Cecil Clarke. He was instructed with designing a weapon that was small enough to be thrown across the road, but powerful enough to blow through armor plating, and ideally blow shrapnel into um, Hydric's body. That was, that was the great plan. So Cecil Clarke thought about this for a while. And what he did is he took this uh, weapon here. This is a number 73 anti-tank percussion grenade. This is a very, very powerful weapon. But you can't chuck one of these across the, uh, across the road. It's sort of this sort of height. So what he did, he slimlined it. He packed it with nitroglycerine. And he, he invented a special fuse, which would, meant that this would detonate on impact. Wherever it landed, it would go off. So you knew that the bomb was going to go off. You just had to get it in the right place. Um, The final grenade, in fact, I've got a photo of it, a terrible photo, but this actually comes from the archives of the Gestapo, um, who found one after the uh, assassination, because they obviously carried several of them. Um, Now, so we have, you know, we have the plan, we have the weapon, but we need some assassins. Well, here they are here. They are uh, Joseph Gabczyk, who's on the right here, and Jan Kubis, who's on the left, Um, One of them, the one on the right, was a very fiery, uh, headstrong individual. The one on the left was a very, rather shy man. But both of them wanted to do anything uh, to hit back um, at the Nazis, even though they knew that they were probably heading off on a uh, suicide mission. They were sent up to Araseg, to the killing school, where they learnt how to throw their weapon at, they used Cecil Clark's car, which is actually quite an interesting story, because this car, Cecil Clark bought it off King Edward VIII when he abdicated. It was a Canadian Buick, and the king couldn't afford to keep it any longer. Um, So the men, these two Czechs, they had this, this grenade and they were chucking it and they were absolutely useless. As one of the English uh, Englishmen instructing them said, um, this was probably, he said, because they had not been reared in the cricketing tradition. <laughs> anyway, they eventually got the hang of it. They uh, got, got on board a plane and they were parachuted into their native land. And then nothing more was heard of them for many months. And they had many, many adventures, which I haven't got time to go into now. They're all in the book. Um, But sure enough, on the appointed day, they found themselves at the uh, hairpin bend. They lobbed the grenade... They missed, unfortunately. They didn't hit the car, but they hit very near the car. And as exactly as was meant to happen, it blew, um, up, it blew up under the back wheel of the car. And it indeed drove a kind of volcanic forceful of shrapnel. And more importantly, in a way, the horsehair, shredded horsehair from the seat of the car, deep into Heydrich's body. Um, He was was mortally wounded and he died within a few days, um, killed by blood poisoning from the contaminated shrapnel. Hitler was absolutely furious by this, and there were terrible reprisals. And, and this is something that um, it's worth mentioning, and it's worth mentioning that it was discussed at length. That Was it worth carrying out these operations when there were certain to be civilian uh, reprisals against civilians? On this occasion, it was deemed, rightly or wrongly, that he had to be got rid of. He was killing so many uh, innocent Czechs um, at, the, at the time that he had to be done away with. A rather nice little postscript was that sometime after, uh, President Roosevelt met with Churchill and asked if by any chance the British had been involved in the, sus- the assassination. Uh, Churchill merely smiled and winked at the president. There were some things that he felt even, he couldn't even say to him. Um, now, just to have a, a look at a few of the weapons that were being produced at the FURS, because it's quite interesting what, what they were actually producing. This was the SG grenade, the sticky bomb. This was, um, this was the one that Churchill ordered, one million to be made. It was covered in this weird glue-like substance. So when you threw it at a tank, it stuck to the tank and then exploded. And that was the key point. It caused much more damage than, you know, if you just chucked a, a normal thing, it bounced off and um, didn't cause much damage. This was a really lethal weapon. Another of Millis Jefferson's inventions was the Piat. This was an, um, an infantry anti-tank gun. This came into its own on D-Day. In fact, the only Victoria Cross that was won in D-Day, the Britain's highest award, was won by um, a British soldier firing one of these. These would take out a German tank quite, quite comfortably if they were fired at reasonably cl- close range. And A very important weapon, because for the first time really in history, an infantryman was e- the equal of a tank on the field of battle. This is a wonderful weapon here, Millis Jeffers again. This was called the Hedgehog. It was an anti-U-boat weapon. So these things, these, these, these weird mortar things, They'd fire upwards into the air and they'd form themselves. Imagine a sort of sub- submarine shape in the sky. And then they'd come tumbling back down. And I have a photo actually here, which is a rather wonderful picture. So they'd enter the sea in the shape of the U boat. And they'd literally, they'd go down and they'd hone in on the, on the U boat. And as with all their weapons, they, um, they exploded on impact. So this was a truly lethal weapon. and. Right from the beginning, um, the American Navy saw the brilliance of this weapon, and they adopted it immediately and fitted it onto many of their ships. And in fact, the, um, the ship, the USS England, um, to this day, it holds the record for sinking. It sank six U-boats in 12 days using Millis Jeffress's uh, weapon, something of an amazing record um, at the time. So just to underscore the scale of what they were doing at the FURS, uh, they produced a, a, a few figures here. Three and a half million um, anti-personnel mines, one and a half million sticky bombs, a million puff balls another weird and wonderful invention, um, one million anti-aircraft uh, fragmentation bombs And, of course, alongside this, many, many millions of booby traps and also then the specialist bespoke weaponry that was being built for small bands of saboteurs that were being sent off into um, Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, A few of the operations, we've we've covered the assassination of Heydrich, but just in in brief here, a couple of them... um, One of the earliest operations using Cecil Clark's limpet mine was to blow up Pessac power station on the Atlantic coast of France. This was a very important target because it powered all the uh, electricity for the U-boat pens on the Atlantic coast. So uh, a a brilliant example of knocking knocking out a soft target. For several months on end, there was no power in these U-boat pens, and they couldn't be used in the North Atlantic at a a very critical time. Um, a, A very brilliant idea of lateral thinking. Another great attack was um, the attack on the dry docks of Saint-Nazaire, again on the Atlantic coast of France. This was, um, they completely destroyed the only dry dock big enough to service um, Hitler's biggest battleship, which was the the Tirpitz. And the Allies knew that without a dry dock on the Atlantic coast, Hitler wouldn't risk taking his his biggest prize ship out into the Atlantic, which was indeed the case. A great operation, Um, One of my favorites uh, here is the attack on the Gorgopotamus viaduct. Now, again, a a brilliant soft target. The war in North Africa is in a very critical stage. There's Montgomery and there's Rommel fighting in the desert. Rommel is being supplied um, from Germany. Um, 50 trainloads of supplies a day travel from Germany across Europe through Greece to Piraeus, and then they're transported by ship to North Africa. Colin Gubbins realizes that as they cross a very remote mountain range, they go across this viaduct here. Well, of course, uh, you know what's going to happen next. They take out that viaduct, a brilliant, masterfully planned uh, operation. They dropped in the saboteurs by plane and uh, they took out the viaduct. And for two months, uh, fully two months, Rommel was deprived of 50 trains of munitions a day. So, at a critical point in the war. So, a, a, a really brilliant operation. Um, another great operation, the destruction of the Norse Hydro heavy water plant in Norway. This produced the heavy water that, was, uh, that Hitler needed if he was going to be able to produce an atomic bomb. Um, an amazing operation. The RAF had tried to bomb this place and failed. Um, so, uh, Gubbins sent in this young chap here, Joachim Ronnenberg, um, who, incidentally, he's, one of the, he's the only survivor of this, um, this operation. He's, he's still alive to this day. Um, they were dropped in um, this amazingly difficult fortified uh, power station. Uh, they climbed up this cliff. They got inside. They blew up the machinery, and they got away, and they got back to England alive. It was a superb operation, and it really deprived him. Uh, from that point on, the atomic Nazi atomic program was brought to a complete halt. Um, uh, then there's this, this attack here by Harry Ray, an amazing character uh, uh, as well. So this plant here is the Peugeot power pla- um, car plant in France. This was the biggest industrial plant in Europe. It employed 60,000 people, and the Nazis had taken it over, and it was producing not Peugeot cars, but tanks and aircraft for the uh, Nazi army. And The RAF had tried to bomb it. They... S- What they did, they sent in these Pathfinder planes, they dropped flares around the outside of the factory, so the RAF plane, the bombers, knew where to bomb, and then the bombers came in and they dropped all their bombs in exactly this perfectly marked area. One big problem was that the Pathfinder planes had dropped their flares all around the French villages on the outskirts of the factory, killing enormous numbers of French civilians, were innocent French civilians, were killed in this raid. And it proved to Colin Gubbins what he'd said all along, that the RAF, the bomber commander, were utterly useless in fighting this sort of war. And it was far more effective to send in one man, Harry Ray, with a bag of explosives. He recruited men inside the factory and they blew up all the key elements of machinery and they took the factory out for months on end. And actually, I should say, when the Germans finally got the replacement machinery, it was brought there, it was all standing in the forecourt of this vast factory, and that very night, Harry Met got in again with a load of explosives and blew the whole lot up again. Um, He, understandably, had a very large price on his head when the Gestapo knew it was him. we're, we're coming towards the end here but I just want to bring in um, William uh, Wild Bill Donovan again because by now um, the American saboteurs were trained and ready for action and we're talking now about 1944, we're talking about just before D-Day and him and Gubbins set up Operation Jedbra. This was whereby three men teams of saboteurs were dropped in, were going to be dropped into occupied France to do their worst, basically. And here is one one such team. This one um, happens to be, I think, this one was called Team Frederick, it was known as. Um, and uh, you can see uh, an American on the left there, an OSS uh, uh, sergeant, a British major in the middle, and a French lieutenant on the right. And these three men, as so many of these teams, they fought throughout June, July, and August, a wonderful, incredible operation of destruction um, against soft targets in northern France. And um, to really capital we have um, this man here, Tommy McPherson, a Scot. He was one of these three men uh, of um, Jedburgh teams. He was dropped in around the time of D-Day. And his task, you know, look at him. He looks about 19. I think he was about 19. His task was to prevent the mighty 2nd um, uh, SS Panzer Division, the, the Das Reich. From coming up from central France to Normandy to attack the Allies as they landed. Now, the Das Reich Panzer Division had 15,000 men, all of whom had fought in the Eastern Front. They had 200 heavy tanks that they were bringing up, and they were were determined to get there to meet the invasion, the Allied invasion, head on, but they hadn't reckoned on Tommy McPherson and his men. They blew up bridge after bridge. You know, French roads have these trees going down them. They just fell tree after tree after tree, and then they booby-trapped all the trees. So Every time, this entire Panzer Division shuddered to a halt. They had to clear the roads. Things blew up, and um, they were attacked by guerrillas on the route. This division should have reached Normandy in 24 hours. It took fully 17 days for it to reach Normandy, by which time, of course, it was simply too late, um, here it is, lurching its way through France. Um, by the time it got there, the Allied, Allied beachhead was secure. So lastly, really, uh, when all said and done, what actually did these uh, operations achieve? Well, if we only talk about Operation Jedbra just before D-Day, um, President Eisenhower himself said, um, he said, I quote, the most outstanding example of sabotage was the delay to the SS, second SS Panzer Division. This played a a very considerable part in our complete and final victory. Um, And he singled out um, Tommy McPherson, really, for absolutely brilliant, uh, outstanding work. And that, of course, is just one operation throughout the war that had been all these other ones. Now, after the war, um, sadly... SOE was disbanded. Uh, Churchill lost the election, of course, just after the war. He wanted to keep the special operations executive going, but the new Labour government didn't, and so it was shut down. But um, in America, um, you were rather more enlightened, and the OSS was, uh, it was um, expanded, it received a lot more money, and it became today's CIA. And I think... Um, Probably not many people in America know that the CIA, today's CIA has a rather unusual pedigree, that it was born out of a back room in, uh, in Whitehall, um, in St. Herman's Hotel in London, um, that the CIA bought, began its life um, as part of what Winston Churchill liked to call his ministry of ungentlemanly warfare. There we are.
0: Thank you.